Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we thank you for the preaching of your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that you love us enough to reveal yourself to us. Let's pray. Lord, we trust that you are watching over your word to perform it. And we believe what you have said about your word, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. So would you feed us now on the bread of life, Jesus Christ? Speak, Lord. For your servants are listening. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Aaron Judge, as many of you know, is a 6'7", 280-pound outfielder for the New York Yankees. He looks indestructible. I don't know if you've ever seen him standing beside someone interviewing him. He is a hulk of a man. But a few weeks ago, he stubbed his toe running to make a catch in the outfield, and now he's out of the lineup for who knows how long because he stubbed his toe. Nobody saw that coming. And since he's the Yankees' best hitter by far, especially this year, it's hard to think how the Yankees are going to manage without him. Life is fragile, even for a team with a payroll as big as the New York Yankees. Even for athletes like Aaron Judge, staying healthy is precarious because life is full of uncertainty. A 6'7", 280 guy can stub his toe, and that could change the course of a season. This is actually one of life's lessons that we've been learning in Ecclesiastes. Life is full of uncertainty. It's unpredictable. It's even unfair. With all this uncertainty, you might think that the preacher in Ecclesiastes would tell you, well, you better limit your risks and tone down your exuberance about life because it's not all it's cracked up to be and you don't know what kind of bad things are going to happen. So you better hedge your bets. But as we have discovered going through Ecclesiastes, it's exactly the opposite. In view of life's uncertainties, the preacher tells you, especially here in Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 10, risk generously in your giving and rejoice responsibly in your living. That's the point of the whole text. Risk generously in your giving and rejoice responsibly in your living. The repeated refrain of the passage is, you don't know. Risk. You don't know. Once in verse 2, twice in verse 5, again in verse 6. Our ignorance of how things will turn out, though, is not a reason to live timidly. It's the reason to risk generously in our giving. In fact, we can actually rejoice in the life that God has given us because even in the face of all our uncertainties, it is good it's the reason to, to live. Generously in our giving. In it's fact, good to live. Actually rejoice in the it's life good to live even in this world that's full of uncertainties and unfairness. And yet the counterbalance comes in verse 12 with what you do know. But good know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. That fact, yet the God's evaluation of us, His final assessment, His judgment. But know His holding us accountable. That's what makes our lives in this senseless world significant and even consequential. So follow along with me as I read 
Our text this morning, chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Cast your bread on the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way of the Spirit that comes to the bones of the womb of a woman with a child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet. And it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Risk generously in your giving and rejoice responsibly in your living. Let's pray. No, we need to walk through it. First point, risk generously in your giving. Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6. Verses 1 and 2 give us two commands and two motives. Cast, let go your bread upon the waters for, reason one, you will find it after many days. Second statement of the command, give a portion to seven or even eight for, reason, you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. So cast and give are parallel commands. To give is what it means to cast. Bread is sustenance. Think pita bread that would float on the water. Flatbread. The illustration in verse 3 is going to clarify most everything. For now, it's enough to realize that you should not keep all your bread to yourself. The illustration in verse 3 is going to clarify Let it go. Most Release it. For now, it's enough to realize that you should not Open your hand. Toss your it out yourself. on the waters. The waters seem risky, murky, Release uncertain, it. foreign, dangerous, unknown, and most of all, ruinous to bread. Nobody likes water. soggy bread. Risky. It seems wasteful uncertain, to toss foreign, bread into a lake. But remember, unknown, this is a metaphor about giving. Ruinous to bread. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. Nobody likes this is about bread. charitable giving. Seems wasteful. This is about how lake, you remember, should be generous in a world giving. where there are no guarantees in life. Seven or even to eight. This is about charitable. This is about sharing what you have with others in need. What's more, it's about, about not being too selective be about who no you share with. To seven or even to eight. And if you're sharing a portion with seven or eight, you're not being incredibly selective about who you're sharing with. 
It doesn't just say one or two or three, seven or eight. Seven or even to eight. I mean, I bet if you had to pick seven or eight people to give charitable giving to, you might have a hard time coming up with people that you would approve of to give your hard-earned money to. I mean, I bet if you had to pick seven or eight people to give charitable but the writer says, toss it out there. Hard time coming up with people give generously without asking too many questions about where your money's going. To give your hard Don't demand to read all the fine print of the whole ministry prospectus. Risk it. The writer says, toss it out there. Give generously give without being too selective. Asking too many questions Why? About where your money's going. For Don't you will find it after many days. That's a promise. Your giving will come back to bless you, not immediately, but eventually after many days, even in ways you cannot plan. It's not going to be all for naught. If you let go of your money and resources for the good of others, if you let go your energy, your time, your love, if you're a checking account rather than just a savings account for distribution more than for mere accumulation, then your generosity will pay off down the road. But there's also a negative motive in verse 2. For you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. Now that could be directed at the recipient or at the giver. The sense might be, look, diversify your giving because you never know who's going to need what from you. So giving to more people increases the odds that your giving will be clutch, at least for someone. But the better way to take it is probably you don't know what disaster may happen to you yourself as the giver before you're able to give it. You might run out of time to be a generous giver. So the application is not to be as stingy as you can so that you're ready for anything that comes. No. The application is you yourself might die in the next unforeseen disaster, and then what will have become of your wealth that you stored up, not to mention of your soul? It's an Old Testament equivalent of Luke 12. This night, your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared. Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The rain cloud in verse 3 is the positive illustration that proves the point about generous and unselective giving in verses 1 through 2. Why do rain clouds fill with rain? They don't fill with rain just so that they can get fuller and fuller and fuller and fuller and fuller forever. No. A cloud fills with rain so that it can be dumped out on the earth and cause plants and people to flourish. That's why they fill up. To empty out. Cloud fills with rain so that it can be dumped out on the earth. Brother Breadwinner, people flourish. That is why you have a job. That is why you earn money. Christian man, you are not a reservoir. That is why you have a job. You are a rain cloud. That is why you earn money. Now, financial independence is good. It's even commanded of you. 1 Thessalonians 4.11, work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. That's good. That's biblical. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Yet, Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but let him work with his hands 
so that he has something to share with those in need. You go from being a taker to being a giver. First Timothy 6, instruct the rich not to be haughty nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's biblical money management. Yes. You need to keep enough to stay independent financially. You need to give enough so that God himself considers you generous. So, Brother Breadwinner, I will say it again. You are not a reservoir. You are a rain cloud. You fill up to disperse. God fills you so that you can spill out onto others. So, ask yourself, who have you been spilling out onto lately? Who's your generosity spilling out over to? You should be spilling out on your family. On your local church, on needy individuals in your local church, you should be spilling out on people who you want to disciple, you bless them, you should be spilling out on people you want to evangelize, you should be spilling out on God-fearing parents who raised you. Do you think of yourself merely as a consumer of benefits from others? Both in the church and outside, or as a provider of God's goodness for others through the goodness that he has shown to you? Who's being drenched with blessings from me? Charles Bridges asks it this way, What blessing am I bringing to my fellow creatures in the family, in the church, in the world? Are those around me enriched by my gifts and graces? Are they benefited by my prayers and good service? What blessing am I bringing to my fellow Who benefits creatures? from you? Family, church, and the world. Are those around me enriched by my gifts and The fallen tree is the negative picture that also motivates us. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. In other words, you, friend, will soon be that dead tree. No matter where or how you die, you, you will stay will dead. That dead. And there's no making up for living no like a miser how you die, once you have died. You once you die, your opportunity no to have been a generous person will be over. Like no more growth, no second chance to be the generous person you know you should have been. Where the tree falls, there it will lie. Verse 4, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Still about giving. Now that verse resonates with me as a yard guy. I used to try to pick the perfect time to fertilize my yard on my own. No wind right before the rain. You know how often I fertilize my own yard? Once or twice in maybe 18 years. 
No wind. Ah, it's just not perfect. No, not yet. No, I not yet. Ah, oh, no, I don't have time. Ah, no, no. You know how often I fertilize my own yard? And again, this is not Once, about waiting for the perfect twice. time to save. Maybe this is about waiting years. for the perfect time to give. If you keep no, waiting yet. for no, the perfect no, no, time no, no, to give, no, no, no. if you think, well, I just need to save a little more, and then I'll start giving. I yeah, just need to get out on my own, buy the house, buy the car, then I'll start giving. Guess when you're going to start giving? Keep waiting for the Day after never. If you think, well... I just need to save a little more. A risk-free time to give will not exist. Guess when you're going to start giving? So Kohelet's Day counsel is get to giving while you're still living. A risk-free Remember what Jesus said. When you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. What's that mean? It means don't tell the miserly accountant in your heart. Living. What the generous Remember, philanthropist said, what in your, your heart, heart is doing. Your right hand know what your left hand is doing. What's that mean? Give from your heart. Don't overanalyze it. If an opportunity to be generous comes along and a generous figure pops into your mind, give it without running the numbers. Don't tell your heart's accountant what your philanthropist side is doing. To be generous comes along and a generous figure pops into your mind. After all, no one is sitting around in heaven regretting how they gave so sacrificially to the cause of Christ and His church in the world. Nobody's doing that in heaven. Nobody's saying, ah, I was so generous that I was never able to afford to give my kids the latest PlayStation that they always wanted. Nobody says that in heaven. No one in heaven is thinking, man, I gave so much to the gospel cause that I never was able to afford my retirement vacation to Venice or my dream house or my dream car or my dream whatever. Nobody's lamenting that sacrifice. Man, I gave so much to the gospel cause that I never was able to afford my retirement vacation to Venice or my dream house or my dream car. Verse 5 to 6 says, You do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Here's the right application of our ignorance. Five to six says, you do not know now, if you the way the just rip that verse out of context, you're like, I get that, I know. So you do not know the I'm aware that I don't everything. know how God is working right in everything. I, I go to a Bible preaching church. That lesson's for visitors, not members. But if you read this in context, it's actually a gut punch for all of us. You don't know what God's doing in the world any more than you know how a human soul is first united to its body in the womb. That's some serious ignorance. You are clueless about the mechanics of a soul's first mingling with its body. You will never understand that. And we are all just that clueless about God's work in the world and what's going to happen and how it's going to be if we give that figure that popped into our mind. But if we're that clueless about God's work in the world, then we can't sit around holding all our cash on the sidelines until we know all that God's doing in the world and which gospel investments will pan out and which ones won't. Kind of like you can't time the market. So you, you can't time your charitable giving. So the application of our ignorance is get going. Get to giving. Get to living. Get to serving. Get to loving. Get to relating and discipling and evangelizing and working and praying and strategizing for the spread of the gospel before you up and die. Get to giving. 
Stop overanalyzing. And again, it applies to both the giving of verses 1 through 4 and the living of verses 6 through 10. This verse is really the fulcrum of the whole paragraph. Ignorance of God's work is not an excuse for selfishness or laziness. Again, it applies to both or cowardice. Giving of verses 1 through 4 and the living of verses 6 through 10. This verse Instead, is really ignorance of God's work is a prod to vigorous giving and generous living. Or ignorance of God's work means that you stop asking, Instead, well, why even try if I don't know? Vigorous giving. That's not the question. Generous living. The question is, ignorance of God's why not? Means that you stop why not do something? Asking, well, why not give why it? Even try why not risk if it? I don't know? After all, who knows what good things could come from it? This is like Jonathan risking it against the Philistines. 1 Samuel 14, 6. Remember this? One of the best sentences in all the Bible. Come, let us... One of the most faith-filled things ever said in the Bible. Come, let us go over to this garrison of the uncircumcised. It may be, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by the many or the few. Come, let us go over... What a great sentence. What a great mentality for your Christian maybe, life. Hey, maybe let's do this. Let's risk it. Because, hey, you never know. Maybe God will use it. Do you know? No, I don't know. But that's the reason I'm going to do it. Because maybe he will. Let's do this. Let's risk it. Because, hey, you never know. David, maybe God will use it. Bless his heart. Praying for the son of his adultery. No, I don't know. In 2 Samuel 12, 22. Who knows? Because maybe he will. Who knows? Whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. David, and he didn't live. Heart, for the son of his but was David still glad he was praying for him? Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Joel 2.14. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows? Whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind. Return to the Lord your God. A good reason to repent? Who knows? Maybe God will quit his anger at us. Maybe he will forgive us. Because he's good. Or Jonah 3.9. Let everyone turn from his evil way. King of Nineveh. Let everyone turn from his evil way after this four-sentence, pathetic, evangelistic, so-called sermon from a runaway prophet. Let everyone turn from his evil way. King Yet 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. Well, way. the king says, hey, guys, let's listen to that. Let's make the most of that little pathetic, sorry, excuse prophet. of a sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh is going knows? to be destroyed. Well, God may turn and hey, relent and turn I, from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Let's make the most of that little pathetic, sorry, excuse of a sermon. That's... The ethos, that's the feel, that's the ethic of Ecclesiastes 11.6. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. All this generosity and industriousness is motivated by ignorance. Because you don't know what disaster might happen, because you don't know the way the Spirit enters the body, because you don't know the work of God's providence, therefore, give, act, serve, live, love, commit. Not because you know exactly what will pay off, but precisely because you don't know which one will pan out, this one or the other one, or 
Or both might go gangbusters and you double your blessing. How about that for logic? Listen to Jacques Allal, our French philosopher friend who is not right about everything, but is right about this. God does everything. But I must do something. God will cause one thing or another to succeed, or both things. But you and I must do them. We cannot fail to act simply because God is the one who does everything. Paul will later repeat this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who produces in you the willing and the doing. Philippians 2. If you do nothing, you will be unable to perceive the work of God because there may be no work of His to observe. If you do nothing, you can never foresee the results of your work. So try things, commit yourself, discover and act one way or another on the off chance that something might succeed. That's wonderful. Yes. That's how Christians should think. That's how Christians should act. That's how Christians should decide and hope and pray. That's how churches should be. That's wonderful. This is especially yes. true in our day. After God has That's given himself to us and his son, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead, if God's already given us his greatest treasure in his son, Christ Jesus, then what will he withhold from us if we are generous and even risky for the cause of Christ and the gospel in this world? Son, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead. What are we afraid of? If God is busy right now summing up all things in Christ, Ephesians 1, then giving the gospel cause like Giving to a gospel cause like planting and strengthening churches is a sure bet in the long run, in the eternal run, even if we never see any return on our investment in this life. And this is why. This is why we can release our money, our energy, our time, our love to gospel churches and gospel causes without fearing that it's all for naught. Charles Bridges wrote, There is no uncertainty as to the result of the work of God. The question is not whether any shall prosper, but what the measure will be, whether this or that, or whether both alike shall be good. That's what's true of gospel causes. And he goes on to apply verse 6 to Christian evangelism and discipleship, church planting, by looking at verse 6 through the lens of Jesus' parable of the sower. Bridges says this, Much of his toil, much of the sower's toil, seems to be in vain. Much disappointment arises from the world, often more from the church. The soil is uncongenial. The prospects of harvest are precarious, but the promise is sure. Thou shalt find it after many days. He looks around. He doesn't see his signs. It's as if his prayers would return into his own heart, but the promise is sure. My word will not return unto me void. Sow thy seed, whatever be the discouragements, Though prayer seems as if it has died on your lips, continue in it. Though you halt in the weary conflict, hold on, you shall find it. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goes forth and weeps, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless, mark the word, doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. We shall reap it in due time if we do not give up. That's how you read Ecclesiastes. Bearing precious seed shall... That's how you think about gospel investment of your time, your energy, your resources, your money, your home. That's how you read Ecclesiastes. And there's a connection here to what Jesus says in John 12, 25. Whoever loves his life shall lose it. Whoever hates his life in the world will keep it to eternal life. It's not just the logic of no risk, no reward. 
It's the logic of keeping your life and money to your own loss and harm. If you never give, never commit, never risk, never let go of your bread on the waters, what have you lost? It's not just the opportunity cost of missing out on a reward. You lose the principle. Never commit, never risk, never let go of your bread on the waters, what have you lost? Jesus says, you love your life, you lose it. You try to save your life in this world, you forfeit your life. You waste it. That's the waste. The waste is not throwing your bread on the waters. The waste is keeping it all to yourself. That's how you lose the principle. By not letting it go. It's like the parable of the talents. The servants who risked it earned more and entered the joy of their master. The one who buried it didn't just lose the chance at more. He lost what he had been given in the first place. Take his talent and give it to the other guys. To him who has, more will be given. But to him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. In other words, you'd best get to giving before God takes it away from you and gives it to somebody else who knows what to do with it. In other words, you'd best Brother, head of household, giving. breadwinner, God Before is God generous. He's been generous to you, hasn't he? You are made in his image to reflect his generosity to other people. So what would anyone here say Brother, about your priorities if, if they looked at your budget spreadsheet and your checkbook? You are made in his image to reflect his generosity to other people. Would they say, so would man, this guy is generous. He's, he's almost generous to a fault. If, or would if, they say... This guy only cares about himself and his own. This guy looks like he's living in fear of the future and love of money. Look at how much he saves. Look how little he gives. Charles Bridges said, Put not to the credit of prudence and principle what belongs to the account of hard-hearted selfishness. Hey, don't you consider it, oh, I'm just being wise, when really you're just being selfish. Prudence and principle, what belongs to the account... No one here sees your checkbook, but God sees it. Hey, don't you consider it... So ask yourself, what is he seeing? When really you're just being selfish. Second, rejoice responsibly in your living. No one here... Rejoice responsibly in your living. Verses 7 to 10. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant to the eyes to see the sun. But Kohelet has seen under the sun all through this book has been so frustrating to him that he said at one point in chapter 6 verse 5 the stillborn is better than the living because it has not seen the sun or known anything yet it finds rest rather than the guy who lived 2,000 years and never saw any good yet near the end of the book now after all said and done it is pleasant it finds rest for the eyes to see the sun. It's good to be a living person under the light of the sun. Near the end of the book now, Life is good. After all said and done, Life is still good. It is pleasant Even in a bad, messed up, upside down, absurd, senseless, I can't explain it. What did that mean? That's unfair world. Life is good. It's good for your eyes to see this sun. 
and to live under Even it. In a bad it's a good gift from a good God. As disillusioning as life under the sun can be sometimes. It still warms us. It still illuminates everything around us. It still brightens our days and cheers up our attitudes. As bad as life can get, it's still good. Productivity is good. Prosperity is good. Generosity is good. Being human in God's world is good at the end of the day because God is good. Bad as life can get, it's still good. And he puts you Productivity here. is good. And he gave you your life just as it is. Generosity is good. Being human in God's world so, is good. Rejoice at the end of the day in all of it. God is good. He puts you here. And he gave you your life just as Kohelet it is. Kohelet is not a pessimist. He's not a defeatist. So, He's not a culture of death guy. He's a culture of life guy. And that leads him to joy. Because life is good, whoever lives long should rejoice every day he's able to live because living and seeing the sun is a good gift from a good God who made us in his good image. So sad friend, angsty teenager, sorrowing Christian, self-pitying soul, this is a command. So sad friend, Rejoice in all your days, even when you live many years, which increases the likelihood that some of your days are going to be sad and bad. Let him rejoice in them all. Rejoice in the life God gave you. Disappointments, confusions, sorrows and all. Rejoice that you got to feel sad. Rejoice that you got to love and then you lost. Well, at least you got to love. Disappointments, confusions, Rejoice in them all. Rejoice that but, you got to feel sad. But rejoice, rejoice that you got to love realistically. And then you lost. But ready you got to love. for the darkness to come. Rejoice in them all. As you rejoice, remember but, that the days of darkness, but, even while you see the sun, will be many. Ready. The future is bright because life is good, but there will be plenty of dark spots because all that comes into this world remember, is tinged with darkness, a streak of the, the ridiculous, the absurd the senseless, the inexplicable, the unfair, the vexing and confusing, the upside down, because life, as good as it is, is still not the way it's supposed to be. It's not that everything in this life will be as bad as it can possibly be. It's that everything you experience in this life is going to have a touch of the absurd, the ridiculous, the senseless, the why in the world did that happen? It's not that everything in this life will be as bad as it can possibly be. It's just like the fallen human heart. It's not that every sinner is as bad as he or she can possibly be. There's still common grace. There's still restraining grace. Yet every part of a sinner's heart and life is and will be tainted by sin and its effects as long as we live in this world. And as with the human heart, so with the whole world. It's not that everything in the world is as bad as it can be. It's that everything that comes to you in this life is tainted with this fallen, broken, disappointing, ridiculous absurdity. Food is going to leave you hungry again. Drink is going to leave you thirsty again. Love will let you down. Work and productivity and accomplishment will leave you feeling meaningless and vacuous if you seek meaning in them. It's not going to satisfy you because this life is not all it's cracked up to be and God's the one who cracked it up that way when we sinned. He's the one, remember, who subjected this world to this futility in Romans 8 as the just 
consequence, the fitting punishment for the futility of our rebellion against this sovereign, good, generous God who created us and commissioned us to rule his world under his authority for his purposes. So, rejoice realistically. On the one hand, realize that the joys of this world are not designed to satisfy completely or last forever. On the other hand, realize that you need to make the most of these joys while you have them because days of light may well give, may well give way to days of darkness. If you don't learn to enjoy the days of light while you have them, they're going to be over. The sun's going to set, and then it's going to be too late to enjoy them. And in the days of darkness, you're going to say, why was I always complaining even when the day was light? You don't learn to enjoy the days of light while you have them. So enjoy the sun while it's still out shining on you. Yes, the days of darkness will be many. But praise God. Praise God. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. We have knowledge of salvation for God's people and the forgiveness of our sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Luke 1. Jesus. Jesus has become the light of the world, even in your darkness. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. But for those of us who are in Christ by faith, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's good. And that is the light by which we live even when our days are dark. And he has given us his written word as a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. So even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for he is with us. And we rejoice realistically knowing that our other, our this worldly joys are only temporary and shallow compared to what God has in store for us, the eternal day. We rejoice while we have the light knowing that the darkness is approaching. And we rejoice responsibly, ready for God's judgment. Rejoice, O young man, verse 9, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. That is, enjoy being young while you have the youth and vigor to enjoy your youth and vigor. Rejoice, O young man, verse 9, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you. Walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes. That's not a blank check to sin it up. It's not the Disney version of follow your heart or doing everything based on your own assumptions or opinions or feelings, but it is a commission to do whatever good your hand finds to do with all your strength while you have the strength to do it. Enjoy and use the strength, vigor, and freedom of being young before you get old. Because that's going to happen before you know it. Don't waste your youth on being angsty and indecisive and feeling you sorry it. for yourself. That's gonna happen before you know it. Don't extend your adolescence by living at home too long or playing video games into your adult years as if you have nothing better to do with your life, as if God has nothing better to do with your life. Don't extend your adolescence 
Take responsibility for living your own life while you're still young. Make it count. Make it matter. Try hard things. Do important things. Aim high. I pray for my own children that the Lord would clarify their vocations early in life so they can flourish and not flounder in their 20s. Take life by the horns. Get trained for a trade or educated for a career that you can see yourself enjoying. Marry that girl that you love. Have as many kids as you can with her as soon as you can. Because they're going to need your strength while you're young. Take risks. Give generously. Live vigorously. Make the most of your life. Commit yourself. Quit hesitating. Go all in. Whatever it is that God has built you to do, get after it. I remember. I remember in seminary, I was signing up for a, uh, an internship, or I was supposed to, and I had a reason to call a professor. I'd never called my professors, but I had a reason to call this guy who was my teacher. He said, hey, Paul, have you, uh, have you, have you signed up for that? Have you applied for that internship yet? I said, no, not yet. He goes, he goes pursue that with vigor. So he said to me, I'll never forget it. That's what God wants you to do. That's how he wants you to live your life. Pursue it with vigor, whatever it is. Get after it. Do it with all your heart. Do it with all your strength. And quit dilly-dallying around and get to it. And use it to love other people. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Get after it. Don't forget, God is going to hold you accountable for all the ways you used or abused your youth. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. He will judge you. He will evaluate you. He will assess you. Hold you responsible for what you let your heart love and pursue, whether it was good or evil. But all the things that you do not and cannot know about the future in verses 1 through 6, what you can know, what you do know, what you must know, is that God will judge you for how you used the life He gave you. And far from putting a damper on your enjoyments, God's evaluation of them is precisely what makes them meaningful in the end. This is real. He's going to grade your work. He's going to evaluate it. I have a workout app on my phone. I didn't say I use it. I said I have it. Part of that app is logging and submitting your workout so that you can evaluate how you're doing so they can evaluate how you're doing. You can compete for fastest times or highest number of reps. If you don't let yourself be evaluated, though, then you're missing out on some of the meaning and motivation and even affirmation of working out. I'm missing out on that. I don't want to log those. I don't want to know how I'm doing. I don't want my workouts to be meaningful at all. But God's judgment, his assessment, his evaluation, his holding you responsible, and the potential of either his affirmation or his condemnation is what makes life so meaningful, so consequential. You've got to get going and do something. God's assessment makes everything you do count. You will either hear... Well done, good and faithful servant. Or you will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. What are you doing with the life God's given you? Well done, good and faithful servant. 
or you will hear the If you follow the stubbornness of your sinful do. heart, God will judge you for that. If you let yourself walk by the lust of your eyes and not by faith in Jesus Christ and his word, God will judge you for living like that. Listen again to our sometimes right French philosopher friend Jacques Ellul. Evil would consist of separating the happiness of God's gift from the possibility of judgment. You can't separate those two. There is a happiness of the gift and you have to keep it connected to the possibility of judgment. Making my enjoyment, my desire, my pleasure into something all mine, something I owe to no one and about which I do not need first to make a judgment. He's saying, look, you can't do it like that. You've got to make a judgment about what you're going to enjoy because God makes that judgment. On the basis of this knowledge of God's judgment, we learn that everything is not acceptable, that we cannot give in to the great temptation of our century, anything goes. We can't give in to that. Not everything goes because God will judge. On the other hand, God will also call you to account for refusing to enjoy the life he gave you at all because that would be ungrateful. On the other hand, so you should enjoy the life God gave you because God will judge you if you don't enjoy it. You're accountable, responsible to enjoy your life as God gave it to you. Ecclesiastes is punctuated with this command to enjoy this life, your life, your spouse, your family, your friends, your food, your work imperfect as it all is because life is God's good gift to people made in his good image. Enjoying your life is not just a possibility, it is a command. It's a command. But to enjoy life, we first have to get out of our own way. Verse 10. And that's hard to do. Look at verse 10. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. What a tender sentence for the Lord to direct to you. Remove vexation from your heart. The timing of that verse is not lost on me. It is funny and ironic and a tender providence to preach this particular verse on my 50th birthday. And I take it personally. This word, vexation, it's a soul-searching word, isn't it? It's soul-searching to me. It's used elsewhere in the Old Testament of how God himself feels provoked, vexed by our sins and our infidelities to him. He is grieved and angered, provoked, vexed. And in those cases, it's translated provocation, as in provoking him to anger. In one of those times, Psalm 85.4, it's translated as indignation. You ever feel like that about life? You're indignant about what happened because the other guy that was less qualified than you got the job that you were applying for. Indignant. Provoked. Why'd you give him that, God? I deserve that. This word for vexation is also used where Hannah's rival wife provoked her grievously over being barren 
in 1 Samuel 1.6, and she prayed from a sense of that vexation and aggravation in 1 Samuel 1.16. It's translated in the Psalms most often as grief. It's like a mix of grief, anger, frustration, confusion, unwelcome surprise, irritation, and exasperation all in one, all at the same time. Grief, anger, frustration, confusion, and it is probably the most convicting word to me personally in the whole book of Ecclesiastes. All in one. All at the same time. Because this word speaks to what goes on in my heart when I'm discontent with my life in this world. And it is probably the most convicting word to me personally in the whole book of Ecclesiastes. When women get frustrated with life, most often they express it by being sad. When men get frustrated with life, most often they express it by getting mad. When teens get frustrated with life, they get angsty. But whoever we are, we are commanded here to put that emotion away. Notice, remove it. Not talk through it. Not understand it. Remove it. Stop it. Get it out of your heart. Remove it. Remove that frustrated sadness and anger about how your life, how my life has taken an unwelcome turn perhaps somewhere in the past or maybe even in the present. Remove the vexation that you feel because God has made something in your life crooked and no matter how hard you try, you cannot straighten that out. Remove the vexation that you feel that is frustrating. That's irritating. It's exasperating. It's no upsetting. It's angering. And it's saddening. And God says, I know. I know what you're feeling. I know what the word is for that. That's vexation. And I also know that no matter how much you feel about it, think about it, talk about it, journal about it, it's not going away. You're not getting to the bottom of it. You're not going to solve it. You're not going to figure it out. You're not going to fix it. You've got to remove it. No matter how much you feel about it, think about Remove. it, talk about it, journal about it, it's not going away. You're not getting to the bottom of it. You're not going to solve it. You're not going to figure out. Now look at how well God knows us. But this sentence is in the Bible. Hey man, I know you're vexed. I know. Remove it. You don't have to engage that. Stop engaging your vexation. Remove it. Man. I know you're vexed. Last week, my littlest boy was very vexed. You don't have to engage that. He wanted a bouncy ball so bad. And when his good, kind, thoughtful big brother bought it for him, he bounced it on the ground, and it didn't bounce. It stayed on the ground. He was terribly he vexed. On the ground. His heart was angry, and it didn't bounce. He was angry still ground. when he got home to me. And when he I tried to comfort him, he refused it and went into the other room. His heart was angry. And ten minutes on, he thought better of being alone, and he came back. Angry. But it still, was the way he, he came back that was so striking and instructive to me. He refused it and went into the other room. I've never seen anything like ten it. Ten minutes on. He stomped his way towards me with his arms crossed, the scowl on his face, growling something I couldn't understand. 
angry tears running down his cheeks. With his arms crossed. And to my great surprise, he flopped himself right into my lap. Growling something I couldn't understand. Angry tears running down his cheeks. He just didn't know what to do with himself. He was so mad. And so frustrated and so at the end of himself. Now, I have many failures as a father. I'm not a hero in that story. I didn't go seek him out. And don't get sappy about it. He was hot and sweaty, so it was kind of gross. But in that moment, I was not mad at him as his dad. I didn't go seek him out. Don't get sappy about it. I was moved by him. Anyone would have been. But in that moment, it elicited my compassion for him because I felt that way. And I want him to bring his vexation to me, even if there's nothing I can do about it. It elicited my compassion for him because I felt God is an infinitely good father, infinitely more kind and wise and compassionate than any of us. And he wants us to remove our vexation from our hearts by bringing it to him so he can handle it. Infinitely more kind and wise and compassionate than any of us. In Christ. He wants us remove our vexation from our hearts Brothers, we have to put away our anger and irritability at life and our quickness to feel so annoyed and aggravated that it boils over in exasperation and anger. You've got to put that away. Irritability at life. Look, man, this is life. This is work. This is fatherhood. This is being a husband. This is it. This is being a churchman. This is how people are. Look, man. This is your job. This is work. This is but it's the only life God has given you. And he's all wise, all knowing, all good, all powerful. So we have to live the life he gave us as it is today, not as we would have planned it or as we thought it was going to go when we were a little kid or when we were in high school or when we were in college. We can't be angry about it. We've got to receive it as a good gift from him. And sisters, you've got to put away your sadness and grief, your anxiety and your depression and frustration and sense of entitlement to better treatment. Teens, put away your anxiety. Put away your angst. It's a fallen world. You're not going to fix it. And all of us are prone to self-pity when we are vexed. Why me? Why this happen? Why do I have to go through this? You're not going to fix it. We've got to put that away, too. If we are to enjoy life, our life, as God intended and commands, we put all that away by coming to God in Christ. Why? Because Christ knows what it's like to be vexed. He said in Gethsemane, Now my soul is deeply troubled, John 12. So troubled that he was in agony. As he prayed, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. You've never been that vexed, have you? He was. Jesus knows what it's like to be vexed. He was more vexed in Gethsemane than any of us have ever been, and he brought it straight to his heavenly Father in prayer. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for all of our sins, rose from the dead to make us righteous in him and to reconcile us to the God we had provoked and vexed with our sins. 
Jesus ascended to his Father to receive the prayers that we pray now in our own vexation under the trials and sorrows and provocations and disappointments of life in a fallen, groaning world. Jesus ascended to his Father to receive the prayers that we pray now in our own vexation. But we also have to rejoice without becoming ridiculous ourselves. We remove vexation from our heart and pain from our body. And the word for pain is just the general Hebrew word for evil, which can be either ethical or physical, just bad. So it needs interpretation. The contrast between a vexed heart and an evil body requires a physicality to this evil. And the reason for removing the evil, the pain, is that youth and the dawn of life are vanity. So we could moralize this to mean remove immorality from your body, and that's a good thing that Scripture commands us to do elsewhere, but here it seems we should remove this evil in the sense of not subjecting our bodies to unnecessary physical pains, extremes, or severities, whether that's in our diet, our exercising, or our clothing. And the reason, again, is that youth and the dawn of life are vanity, absurdity, meaningless, they're fleeting, they don't matter as much as you think they do. Exercising or our clothing. The in other again, words, is youth and the dawn of life stop trying vanity, so hard to hold on to your youth. They don't matter as much as you think they do. Stop trying so in hard to stay young. That's a losing battle. So hard it's not realistic. It's not a worthy youth. pursuit. In fact, the effort to stay young only very stop often makes you look ridiculous. The people who try hardest to stay youngest look ridiculous. And it makes you even more subject to the futility and absurdity and senselessness of life. Now you begin to look absurd yourself because you're an old person who's trying to look young. Quit it. And it makes you even more subject you got to reconcile yourself to your age, to the fading of your you begin to look absurd yourself. Now, I would like this verse to mean also that I should not work out or watch what I eat. Remove pain from your body. Stop working out. Eat dessert all the time. I don't think that's what it means either. But it does mean I have to recognize and live with the undeniable fact that youth and literally, I think, a better transition is black hair. Eat dessert all the time. That's vanity. I don't just think that because of my own situation. I think it's a better translation. Black hair is a better translation than dawn in this context. The lexical difference is only one vowel, and the context demands that dawn of life is about birth. Dark hair of life is about the prime of life. Youth being vanity is about trying to hold on to the prime of life when you know you can't. Dark hair of life is about dark the prime hair of is about the prime of life. Gray hair is about old age. We have to humble ourselves and be reconciled to the fading of our flesh. You can't hang on to your youth forever. And the more you do, the more absurd it becomes. Again, this doesn't mean it's wrong to dye your hair or encourage it to grow back. The more you do, though you have seen how I have applied the passage. But clutching at our youth is Again, unbecoming of a Christian. Don't you know what's going to happen when you die? How I have the passage? You're going to get a new one. But clutching at our You're going to get a new one. 
So don't be vexed about losing your youth. Working to stay young is a dead end job. Be healthy, but make peace with your age before you make a fool of yourself. It's been said that youth is wasted on the young, but youthishness is also unbecoming of the old. Of all things that are vanity, youth may be at the top of the list. And yet modernity idolizes it. Christian, you know better. You've read Ecclesiastes. Youth in the prime of life are vanity. Nothing more. Life is uncertain. There's so much we don't know. But that's why we need to get going, to get giving, to get to living. Don't give grudgingly. Give generously. Don't live timidly. Live vigorously, boldly. Grab life by the horns. But remember, for all this, God will bring you into judgment. Are you ready for this? Let's pray. Remember, for all this, God will bring you to judgment. You ready for that? Oh God, we confess. And we agree with you that we don't know. There's so many things we don't know, and we have sinfully God, let our God. ignorance lead us into inaction and timidity and faithlessness. We agree with you that we don't know so many things we don't know. We have and we have also too much engaged the vexation, anger, sorrow, depression, disappointment of our hearts with how this life has gone for us. And we have also when you tell us to remove it. Well, Lord, who else can we go to we don't know how to remove that. We don't know how to get that out of our heart. You tell us to remove it. So, Lord Christ, we come to you. You, the one who was vexed beyond all vexation in Gethsemane before you endured the wrath of your Father for all of our sins, the greatest unfairness, the greatest injustice from a human standpoint that we could ever imagine. So, Lord Jesus, would you help us? Would you give us wisdom and understanding and willingness to let go of all of this vexation that has filled our hearts from time to time? Would you help us not to hang on so unbecomingly to our youth because we know that you will renew us after we die? Oh, Lord, help us to live and feel and think and act like real Christians in all of these things. Help us to relate to your world as you designed us to relate to it, to enjoy it realistically and responsibly to your glory, to our everlasting good, to Christ's honor in our lives. Amen.